Section 9 of Part 3 of Religious Affections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew James Gray, mjgray.id.au. Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Section 9 of Part 3. 5. Truly gracious affections are attended with a reasonable and spiritual conviction of the judgment, of the reality and certainty of divine things. This seems to be implied in the text that was laid as the foundation of this discourse, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. All those who are truly gracious persons have a solid, full, thorough, and effectual conviction of the truth of the great things of the gospel. I mean that they no longer halt between two opinions. The great doctrines of the gospel cease to be any longer doubtful things, or matters of opinion, which, though probable, are yet disputable. But with them they are points settled and determined, as undoubted and indisputable, so that they are not afraid to venture their all upon their truth. Their conviction is an effectual conviction, so that the great spiritual mysteries and invisible things of the gospel have the influence of real and certain things upon them. They have the weight and power of real things in their hearts, and accordingly rule in their affections, and govern them through the course of their lives. With respect to Christ's being the Son of God and Saviour of the world, and the great things he has revealed concerning himself and his Father and another world, they have not only a predominating opinion that these things are true, and so yield their assent, as they do in many other matters of doubtful speculation, but they see that it is really so. Their eyes are opened, so that they see that really Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as to the things which Christ has revealed of God's eternal purposes and designs concerning fallen man and the glorious and everlasting things prepared for the saints in another world, they see that they are so indeed. And therefore these things are of great weight with them, and have a mighty power upon their hearts, an influence over their practice, in some measure answerable to their infinite importance. That all true Christians have such a kind of conviction of the truth of the things of the gospel is abundantly manifest from the Holy Scriptures. I will mention a few places of many. Matthew chapter 16 verses 15, 16 and 17. But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. My Father which is in heaven hath revealed it unto thee. John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69 Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe, and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. John chapter 17, verses 6, 7 and 8 I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. 
now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Acts chapter 8 verse 37 If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 11, 12, 13 and 14 We which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. Death worketh in us. We have the spirit of faith according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you together with verse 16, for which cause we faint not, and verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, etc. And chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God. And verses 6, 7, and 8, therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 Whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen, together with that whole chapter. 1 John chapter 4 verses 13, 14, 15 and 16 Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit, and we have seen, and do testify, that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Therefore, truly gracious affections are attended with such a kind of conviction and persuasion of the truth of the things of the gospel, and sight of their evidence and reality, as these and other scriptures speak of. There are many religious affections which are not attended with such a conviction of the judgment. There are many apprehensions and ideas which some have that they call divine discoveries, which are affecting, but not convincing. Though for a little while they may seem to be more persuaded of the truth of the things of religion than they used to be, and may yield a forward assent, like many of Christ's hearers who believed for a while, yet they have no thorough and effectual conviction, nor is there any great abiding change in them, in this respect, that, whereas formerly they did not realize the great things of the gospel, 
Now these things, with regard to reality and certainty, appear new to them, and they behold them, quite in another view than they used to. There are many persons who have been exceedingly raised with religious affections, and think they have been converted, that do not go about the world any more convinced of the truth of the gospel than they used to be, or at least there is no remarkable alteration. They are not men who live under the influence and power of a realizing conviction of the infinite and eternal things which the gospel reveals. If they were, it would be impossible for them to live as they do. Because their affections are not attended with a thorough conviction of the mind, they are not at all to be depended on, however great a show and noise they make. It is like the blaze of tow or crackling of thorns, or like the forward flourishing blade on stony ground that has no root nor deepness of earth to maintain its life. Some persons, under high affections and a confident persuasion of their good estate, have that, which they very ignorantly call a seeing the truth of the word of God, and which is very far from it, after this manner. They have some text of scripture coming to their minds in a sudden and extraordinary manner, immediately declaring unto them, as they suppose, that their sins are forgiven, or that God loves them and will save them, and it may be, have a chain of scriptures coming one after another to the same purpose. And they are convinced that it is truth, i.e., they are confident that it is certainly so that their sins are forgiven, and that God does love them, etc. They say they know it is so, and when the words of Scripture are suggested to them, and as they suppose immediately spoken to them by God, in this meaning they are ready to cry out, Truth! Truth! It is certainly so. The word of God is true. And this they call a seeing the truth of the word of God. Whereas the whole of their faith amounts to no more than only a strong confidence of their own good estate, and so a confidence that these words are true, which they suppose tell them they are in a good estate, when indeed, as was shown before, there is no scripture which declares that any person is in a good estate directly, or any other way than by consequence, so that this, instead of being a real sight of the truth of the word of God, is a sight of nothing but a phantom, and is wholly a delusion. Truly, to see the truth of the word of God is to see the truth of the gospel, which is the glorious doctrine the word of God contains concerning God and Jesus Christ and the way of salvation by him and the world of glory that he is entered into and purchased for all them who believe. And not a revelation that such and such particular persons are true Christians and shall go to heaven. Therefore, those affections which arise from no other persuasion of the truth of the word of God than this arise from delusion and not true conviction, and consequently are themselves delusive and vain. But if the religious affections that persons have do indeed arise from a strong persuasion of the truth of the Christian religion, their affections are not the better, unless their persuasion be a reasonable persuasion and conviction. By a reasonable conviction I mean a conviction founded on real evidence, or upon that which is a good reason, or just ground of conviction. Men may have a strong persuasion that the Christian religion is true, when their persuasion is not at all built on evidence, and altogether on education and the opinion of others. As many Mohammedans are strongly persuaded of the truth of the Mohammedan religion, because their fathers and neighbours and nation believe it, 
that belief of the truth of the Christian religion, which is built on the very same grounds with a Mohammedan's belief of the Mohammedan religion, is the same sort of belief. And though the thing believed happens to be better, yet that does not make the belief itself to be of a better sort. For though the thing believed happens to be true, yet the belief of it is not owing to this truth, but to education. So that, as the conviction is no better than the Mohammedan's conviction, so the affections that flow from it are no better in themselves than the religious affections of the Mohammedans. But if that belief of Christian doctrines which persons' affections arise from be not merely from education, but indeed from reasons and arguments which are offered, it will not from thence necessarily follow that their affections are truly gracious, for in order to that it is requisite not only that the belief which their affections arise from should be reasonable, but also a spiritual belief or conviction. I suppose none will doubt but that some natural men do yield a kind of assent of their judgments to the truth of the Christian religion from the rational proofs or arguments that are offered to evince it. Judas, without doubt, thought Jesus to be the Messiah from the things which he saw and heard, but yet all along was a devil. So, in John chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25, we read of many that believed in Christ's name when they saw the miracles that he did, whom yet Christ knew had not that within them which was to be depended upon. So, Simon the sorcerer believed when he beheld the miracles and signs which were done, but yet remained in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity. Acts chapter 8, verses 13 and 23. But if there is such a belief or assent of the judgment in some natural men, none can doubt but that religious affections may arise from that assent or belief, as we read of some who believed for a while, that were greatly affected, and anon with joy received the word. It is evident that there is such a thing as a spiritual belief or conviction of the truth of the things of the gospel, or a belief that is peculiar to those who are spiritual, or who are regenerated, and have the Spirit of God in his holy communications, and dwelling in them as a vital principle. So that the conviction they have does not only differ from that which natural men have in its concomitants, in that it is accompanied with good works, but the belief itself is diverse, the assent and conviction of the judgment is of a kind peculiar to those who are spiritual, and that which natural men are wholly destitute of. This is evident by the scripture, if anything at all is so. John chapter 17 verse 8, They have believed that thou didst send me. Titus chapter 1 verse 1, According to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. John chapter 16 verse 27, The Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. 1 John chapter 4 verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God, hath the witness in himself. What a spiritual conviction of the judgment is, we are naturally led to determine from what has been said already, under the former head of a spiritual understanding. The conviction of the judgment arises from the illumination of the understanding, 
the passing of a right judgment on things depends on having a right apprehension or idea of things, and therefore it follows that a spiritual conviction of the truth of the great things of the gospel is such a conviction as arises from having a spiritual view or apprehension of those things in the mind. And this is also evident from the scripture, which often represents that a saving belief of the reality and divinity of the things proposed and exhibited to us in the gospel is from the Spirit of God's enlightening the mind, to have right apprehensions of the nature of those things, and so as it were unveiling things, or revealing them, and enabling the mind to view them and see them as they are. Luke chapter 10 verses 21 and 22 I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. John chapter 6 verse 40 And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son, and believeth on him, may have everlasting life. Where it is plain that true faith arises from a spiritual sight of Christ. And, John chapter 17, verses 6, 7, and 8, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send one. Where Christ's manifesting God's name to the disciples, or giving a true apprehension and view of divine things, was that whereby they knew that Christ's doctrine was of God, and that Christ himself was of him, and was sent by him. Matthew chapter 16 verses 16 and 17 Simon Peter said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. 1 John chapter 5 verse 10 He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Galatians chapter 1 verses 14, 15 and 16 being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. If it be so, that that is a spiritual conviction of the divinity and reality of the things exhibited in the gospel, which arises from a spiritual understanding of those things, I have shown already what that is, viz. a sense and taste of the divine, supreme, and holy excellency and beauty of those things, so that then is the mind spiritually convinced of the divinity and truth of the great things of the gospel, when that conviction arises, either directly or remotely, from such a sense or view of their divine excellency and glory as there is exhibited. This clearly follows from things that have been already said, and for this the scripture is very plain and express. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. But if our gospel be hid, 
it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Together with the last verse of the foregoing chapter, which introduces this, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Nothing can be more evident than that a saving belief of the gospel is here spoken of by the apostle as arising from the minds being enlightened to behold the divine glory of the things it exhibits. This view or sense of the divine glory and unparalleled beauty of the things exhibited to us in the gospel has a tendency to convince the mind of their divinity two ways, directly and more indirectly and remotely. 1. A view of this divine glory directly convinces the mind of the divinity of these things, as this glory is in itself a direct, clear, and all-conquering evidence of it, especially when clearly discovered, or when this supernatural sense is given in a good degree. He that has his judgment thus directly convinced and assured of the divinity of the things of the gospel, by a clear view of their divine glory, has a reasonable conviction. His belief and assurance is altogether agreeable to reason, because the divine glory and beauty of divine things is, in itself, real evidence of the divinity, and the most direct and strong evidence. He that truly sees the divine, transcendent, supreme glory of those things which are divine, does, as it were, know their divinity intuitively. He not only argues that they are divine, but he sees that they are divine. He sees that in them wherein divinity chiefly consists, for in this glory, which is so vastly and inexpressibly distinguished from the glory of artificial things, and all other glory, does mainly consist the true notion of divinity. God is God, and distinguished from all other beings, and exalted above them, chiefly by his divine beauty, which is infinitely diverse from all other beauty. They therefore that see the stamp of this glory in divine things, they see divinity in them, they see God in them, and see them to be divine, because they see that in them wherein the truest idea of divinity does consist. Thus a soul may have a kind of intuitive knowledge of the divinity of the things exhibited in the gospel. Not that he judges the doctrines of the gospel to be from God without any argument or deduction at all, but it is without any long chain of arguments. The argument is but one, and the evidence direct. The mind ascends to the truth of the gospel but by one step, and that is its divine glory. It would be very strange if any professing Christian should deny it to be possible that there should be an excellency in divine things which is so transcendent and exceedingly different from what is in other things, that if it were seen would evidently distinguish them. We cannot rationally doubt, but that things that are divine, that appertain to the Supreme Being, are vastly different from things that are human, that there is a godlike, high, and glorious excellence in them, that does so distinguish them from the things which are of men, 
that the difference is inevitable, and therefore such as, if seen, will have a most convincing, satisfying influence upon anyone that they are what they are, vis-à-vis -vis divine. Doubtless, there is that glory and excellency in the divine being, by which he is so infinitely distinguished from all other beings, that if it were seen, he might be known by it. It would therefore be very unreasonable to deny that it is possible for God to give manifestations of this distinguishing excellency in things by which he is pleased to make himself known, and that this distinguishing excellency may be clearly seen in them. There are natural excellencies that are very evidently distinguishing of the subjects or authors to any one who beholds them. How vastly is the speech of an understanding man different from that of a little child! And how great distinguished is the speech of some men of great genius, as Homer, Cicero, Milton, Locke, Addison, and others, from that of many other understanding men. There are no limits to be set to the degrees of manifestation of mental excellency that there may be in speech. But the appearances of the natural perfections of God in the manifestations he makes of himself may doubtless be unspeakably more evidently distinguishing than the appearances of those excellencies of worms of the dust, in which they differ one from another. He that is well acquainted with mankind and their works, by viewing the sun, may know it is no human work, and it is reasonable to suppose that, when Christ comes at the end of the world in the glory of his Father, it will be with such ineffable appearances of divinity, as will leave no doubt to the inhabitants of the world, even the most obstinate infidels, that he who appears is a divine person. But above all, do the manifestations of the moral and spiritual glory of the divine being, which is the proper beauty of the divinity, bring their own evidence, and tend to assure the heart. Thus the disciples were assured that Jesus was the Son of God, for they beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1 verse 14 when Christ appeared in the glory of his transfiguration to his disciples with that outward glory to their bodily eyes, which was a sweet and admirable symbol of the semblance of his spiritual glory, together with his spiritual glory itself, manifested to their minds, the manifestation of glory was such, as did perfectly and with good reason, assure them of his divinity, as appears by what one of them, vis-à-vis -vis the Apostle Peter, says concerning it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory, where there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard, when we were with him in the holy mount. The Apostle calls that mount the Holy Mount, because the manifestations of Christ, which were there made to their minds, and which their minds were especially impressed and ravished with, were the glory of his holiness, or the beauty of his moral excellency, or, as another of these disciples who saw it expresses it, his glory, as full of grace and truth. Now this distinguishing glory of the divine being has its brightest appearance in manifestation in the things proposed and exhibited to us in the gospel, the doctrines there taught, the word there spoken, and the divine counsels, acts, and works there revealed. 
these things have the clearest most admirable and distinguishing representations and exhibitions of the glory of god's moral perfections that ever were made to the world and if there be such a distinguishing evidential manifestation of divine glory in the gospel it is reasonable to suppose that there may be such a thing as seeing it what should hinder but that it may be seen it is no argument that it cannot be seen that some do not see it though they may be discerning men in temporal matters if there be such ineffable distinguishing evidential excellencies in the gospel it is reasonable to suppose that they are such as are not to be discerned but by the special influence and enlightenings of the spirit of god there is need of uncommon force of mind to discern the distinguishing excellencies of the works of authors of great genius those things in milton which to mean judges appear tasteless and imperfections are his inimitable excellencies in the eyes of those who are of greater discerning and better taste and if there be a book which god is the author of it is most reasonable to suppose that the distinguishing glories of his word are of such a kind as that the corruption of men's hearts which above all things alienates men from the deity and makes the heart dull and stupid to any sense or taste of those things wherein the moral glory of the divine perfections consists i say it is but reasonable to suppose that this would blind men from discerning the beauties of such a book and that therefore they will not see them but as god is pleased to enlighten them and restore a holy taste to discern and relish divine beauties end of section 9 of part 3 Recording by Matthew James Gray, mjgray.id.au